Hello humans of triathlon and welcome back or welcome to the hot podcast where we bring you the ordinary but extraordinary world of triathlon one human one story at a time with the aim to inspire and to celebrate this life-changing sport and its humans through real authentic raw and enjoyable conversations with triathletes from around the globe and from all walks of life I'm Swapnil Chauhan here with my co-host Charles Hunk and Radmom Robin along with another amazing guest. Hey everyone, this is part 2 of our conversation with Dave Scott, six-time Ironman world champ. If you haven't listened to part 1 already, we would recommend you listen to that one first and then get back to this one. And if you've already listened to part one, then well, we hope you enjoyed this part as well. Okay, so you know, before we kind of switch gears here and get into more of your coaching philosophies and such, um, I've actually prepared a sort of rapid fire round here. Uh, we haven't really done this on the show before, but since we had a special guest, thought it will only be right to add something a little extra to the show. So we're gonna put you on the spot here and. There are all different types of questions in the mix, and all you've got to do is complete the sentences or answer the questions as quick as you can with short and sharp answers. Oh wow! It sounds like a game show or something. <laughs> so I'm, not, I'm not very good at being short and concise, but I'll do my darndest. All right, let's go. So, do you hate losing more than you love winning, or vice versa? Uh, I don't hate losing if I've maximized my potential. Did you race to be your best, or did you race to be the best? I race to be my best and the irony is that I wanted to be the best. Mm. What's the food you crave most after a long hard day? <laughs> my diet's dramatically changed so I don't eat cardboard rice cakes now. I'd probably really dig a couple avocados. <laughs> okay. Most memorable moment in your athletic career? Mm. 1996 I got 5th place. Mm. And no one introduces me as Dave Scott six-time Ironman champion. Oh, he got three seconds, and he got a fifth. The fifth race was the most powerful race for me because I I had given up in that race until about uh, 150k into the bike, and I said I have an opportunity to run. And when I that bell went off, I said I'm back on my game, the game that I've always played. I said this is an amazing opportunity. Um, I know this isn't one sentence, and I told my <laughs> distraught friends and family that were on the course near the end. And I said, "Tell me where number ten is." And I, I had no idea where the tenth place guy. I thought it was passed by eighty people, and I didn't know this till the next day. But I was in twenty-sixth place off the bike and started catching a, a lot of the athletes. And I just ran out of real estate. I caught the tenth. I caught the tenth guy. at about 35k and caught the fifth guy uh about 38k and I just said boy if this, if the if the Ironman run was 70k I was going to catch the leaders but <laughs> <laughs> and what's the most memorable moment of your life Ooh. oh wow um well if I can lump all my kids births together those are all yeah yeah that that's fair very very vivid and you know just remarkable uh, <laughs> how that happens and and um seeing those little peanuts uh, come to life so yeah that's by far yo weirdest pre-race ritual or superstition uh i don't really have any okay i i don't have any 
Okay, complete the sentence. It all comes down to? Your mindset. The thing I understand most is? <laughs> Not women. Uh... <laughs> uh... <laughs> I think that's a good enough answer. Okay. I love it. The worst advice you've ever been given? <laughs> oh, just go out and have fun. <laughs> When fun is pushing yourself. When I hear people say, "Oh, I did, I'm just going to do it for fun," and I'm going to spend four thousand dollars to get there and just do it, I say, "Why bother? You're better off reading a novel at home." <laughs> I said, regardless of the time of the year, where where you are, set set some standards for yourself, and then you're going to be satisfied. So when people say, "Oh, just do it for fun," and Robin, you alluded to this, I think every race is fun, and it didn't matter if I was you know, 26 in my first Ironman or I'm nearly 65, I still have fun in the races and I like pushing myself to the nth degree. Yeah. A country you would like to go to that you haven't visited yet? India. <laughs> Your favorite race location excluding Kona? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I really enjoyed St. Croix. I didn't do very well there, but it, it's a pretty cool island and there are a number of other places i'd like to visit that have pretty glorious races awesome and just a few more a slogan a mantra you repeat to yourself when the going gets tough do what you can do at the moment is there a word that cuts to the center of what you do best oh boy D discipline is there a word that cuts to the center of who you are <laughs> uh, <ooh. laughs> boy, that'd be a hard one to answer um I'm very candid. My candor can kill me at times, but I've always been candid. Perfect. All right. Well, well done, I guess. And and the winner is <laughs> yeah. Proven <laughs> that you're probably going to say is all I could say, but uh, you had to you had to keep me on a short leash on that set of questions. All good. All right. Since we're losing time, let's let's kind of switch gears now. Would like you to put on your coaching hat and talk to us about your training and coaching philosophies. And, you know, because we're limited on time here, it would be great if you could sort of lead the conversation here just so we don't miss out on areas that you see and find are important when it comes to age group athletes. So where do you believe the starting point of this conversation should be? Um, I think a lot of athletes o overlook the value of interjecting higher intensity interval segments. Hmm. I can define that. It depends on the cycles of the year when you should do these. But even in the off season, even in the build season, if those are parallel, people should be doing segments with good biomechanics from 25 seconds to two minutes. And those could be a buildup, but they should finish these, you know, hard to very hard, depending on their background. The short return for the age group athlete is that if you've never done this, and there's very good data on this, you take a sedentary person, you do about four minutes. I do these higher intensity pieces twice a week on the swim, twice on the bike, twice on the run, anywhere between 18 to around 18 minutes, even in the off season. Uh, and these are broken up in those segments. Athletes, triathletes are overlooking the merit of doing that, not only from a performance standpoint, but also from a health standpoint. In combination with this, one area that that bothers me when I look at athletes' profile and if they're you know, developing injury patterns or they're not improving 
is are you doing any mobility, flexibility, and strength? And just very briefly, the, the three key areas that most triathletes have trouble and over time can develop uh, asymmetry in their patterns is that they lose mobility in their shoulder and their whole shoulder girdle. It's pretty complex. Mm. They lose mobility in their middle back, their thoracic spine, not only length and, all, and, and rotation, and they lose mobility in their hips. And that whole kinetic chain is connected. I, I'll just give you a really quick example. When people enter their hand on freestyle and you're looking at their body position, quite often, and it's more prevalent with men, the right hand enters the water and you all of a sudden see their feet, their feet, the opposite end, splay apart. The left foot is dorsiflexed and all of a sudden looks like they're doing side stroke. And the reason they're doing that is that that whole chain all the way through their lats and their serratus, their hip flexors, their low back are causing them to, to balance themselves in the water. So they get this splaying motion, which increases drag. Mm. And athletes have to pay attention to this. Some some people have a hypermobility, but it's a very small percentage. I'm hypermobile, yeah. Yeah, and, and you see this with you know great swimmers. A lot of them are hypermobile in their shoulders and their knee joint and their ankles. And they develop it because it, you know they're working on it dynamically when they're swimming. Most of the triathletes uh, and in the camps that I that I present or the sessions or clinics, most of them are so extraordinarily tight in those three areas and the, all the muscles and the connective tissue and the tendons that move around that that they they end up working harder. They think going longer is is going to cure things. So they've got to work on the strength, mobility, and flexibility. And, and lastly. You have to work on biomechanics. You have to work on good technique. And, and that includes the bike. You, ha you obviously have to have a good bike setup that can change from year to year as you hopefully increase your flexibility and mobility. You have to have good technique on the run and be reminded of it. And uh, I, I coach a couple of swim classes still in Boulder. And I, I have a run session. I used to do the mobility, flexibility, and strength. And I don't have time for that, but I, I teach this at my camps and um in Kona at the Four Seasons, every single day, including today when I coached in the coach my squad and we had 25 people, I talk to every single one of them and I see people change. All of a sudden I think, gee, they developed this funny thing on the front end of their stroke or their elbows coming out kind of uh, unusual. And I think people need to be reminded on not only, you, hey, you're making a mistake, but how do you change it? Yeah, exactly. So that how, like how much depth do you think an athlete should know about like the science of the whole, you know, like the biomechanics and everything? Should they just listen to a coach or should, should do they need to like take the time and understand what the science is behind it? Well, I, I think, I think that I, I think the science, whether it's coming from reading or it's coming from a coach who understands that uh, it, it's good to evolve because if if you don't take it in you become stagnant or you become complacent or you become rigid with your training program like this is worked before so therefore i'm going to do more of the same mm. and, and that's just being naive or ignorant so i, I think de developing uh a, a maybe a soft interest in the science is very very key and that should be collaborated with you know, whether or not, you know, I, I cover it all the time with this Dave Scott Tri Club stuff where, you know, we have videos on technique and uh, we're, I was talking about using power meters and I talk about biomechanics on running, but you're, they're individual coaches. If you have a coach, 
they should be going over that with you. And you should be asking as an athlete, why? Why do I want to do that? What's the purpose of that? What's the benefit? What's the need that I have? And the coach should be able to answer that. And if, and if the coach doesn't, then they need to find out. And I, and I think that inquisitiveness with the athlete lies on both parties. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I like to see an exchange. And Swap, now I'll just say one thing. I did look at your pictures on your website just to see who you were. All of you, I, I know what you look like. <laughs> and I was looking at one of your shots on your um, kettleball <laughs> squat. Yep. And uh, I, I said, look at that. That's bad position. You shouldn't show that on your website. <laughs> yeah. You have your elbows down, so your elbows are down right next to your knees, and you want to keep your elbows high because that keeps your back uh, in a more upright position. And right now, when you do that, your back's going to take over a banana-like position. Right. So you're going to be really rounded. So you put a lot of you put a lot of stress in your low back as you particularly press up on. That. And and the crazy thing is, I'm doing that to help my lower back. Yeah. Well, when you're when you're doing that kettlebell, you have to have mobility in your in your ankles so that you can come down lower. And if you don't, you end up putting more weight on your metatarsal pad on your feet and leaning forward a little bit. And I don't the picture I can't discern that, but you've dropped your elbows way down. You want to kind of tuck your chin back so like you're making a double chin. You square your shoulders up and you actually point your elbows out when you're doing a kettlebell one. Uh, or a forward squat, you point your elbows forward, not down at the floor. Yours are down at the floor. Right. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's Can I just one. say, I, I just love that they, they just can't stop coaching. Got your finish on your freestyle, your third shot on your, uh, <laughs> on your page. Got your hand come out of it. Like you're finishing your stroke and you've got your hand come out of a deep pocket. You want your wrist hyperextended. So if you put an eyeball on your palm, it's looking back, not at your thigh. You got to take a look at your picture, your third picture. Really, really common in swimming. A lot of people will finish where they turn their palm in towards their thigh. And it's very ineffective. You'd be a better swimmer. You need to, need to <laughs> come to one of my clinics. Bob, and I'll really, really, really bad. Thing. Would love to. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, that I think that's one thing I've been struggling. So I've been going through an injury, right? And I haven't been too into the whole reason behind doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And I guess that's the reason I'm making the mistakes you just mentioned. Mm. So I think even with just performance-wise and even injury rehab, I think knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it is like really important. No, it's, it's magic, and it, it you know yields confidence, and that's why you should know. Mm-hmm. We, we all we all want to look at the world's best because they figured out something either by themselves or with their coaches or in collaboration. That doesn't mean that there's it's right, and you need to parallel what they're doing. A lot of them just have, genetically are extraordinarily gifted, and, they, and they've done it amazingly well. Uh, and and it really parallels. You know, if if I superimpose Michael Phelps. Uh, on your on your body and say do the stroke just like Michael Phelps 90% of the triathletes are real tight in their shoulders and their back and their hips they can't they don't have the mobility that Michael Phelps does so therefore don't replicate his pattern try a wider entry think about lifting your heels up because you have no plantar flexion in your ankles so you don't think of your legs as providing propulsion and they stabilize the front end and and I, and I think a lot of triathletes say, well, so-and-so does this and I want to look like that. And, uh, you know, it comes back to simple messaging, like increase the length of your stroke, get distance per stroke. Well, that does not work for a lot of folks because they de-accelerate and they sink to the bottom. 
So I have a question to follow up on that, Dave. Do you feel like your emphasis on technique is so strong because you come from swimming where technique is basically king? Uh, I, I would say about biomechanics in all three, as I alluded to, is paramount. And, and I'm a stickler when I watch people run. I have a running group I mentioned on every Wednesday here in Boulder. And, and at the camps, we videotape people. And, you know, if I see someone with a high shoulder or they're pulling their arm behind them up towards their spine, uh, and, and then I'm looking down that chain, that's usually not the problem. It's usually because their hip flexor is kind of tight. Um, if I see people that are kind of slapping when they're landing and you see this with, with older people like myself, you know, what happens when you age is your eyes go down, you start looking down, you become more kyphotic in your upper back, rounded in your shoulders, internally rotated because your pecs are tired and you end up loading your, your quads a lot more. And I always tell people to tuck that chin and get your eyes up, get your pelvis underneath, see if you can get a little more hip extension and, and don't do the, the Ironman shuffle where you have. No lift on the back end. So, yeah, Robin, I'm uh, the biomechanics. I I have a huge pa passion for it in all three, and that's kind of what I teach. It's part of my formula, I guess. <laughs> so, you know, we have quite a few listeners of the show who are newbies in the sport, as well as people who have been in the sport for a while, maybe been doing some sprint and Olympic distances, and looking to move on to the seventy point three distance, and even maybe to the Ironman. So what would you say is the correct way to move up the distances and what are the main training and racing changes or adjustments required when moving up to a distance? Uh, I think from Olympic distance, uh, again, you, you look at the world's best. What's the difference? You also look at the energy delivery. The difference in speed and potential training isn't a lot different than, than Olympic distance. You look at the times on the on the swim, the bike, and the run with the very, very best, and there's a real minimal, minimal fall off from what they're doing in Olympic distance race. We we see more obviously in, in 21k on the run as opposed to a 10k on the end. So in saying that, I I think one of the areas is that don't think by adding volume you're going to get faster when you go from Olympic to 70.3. Include the higher intensity, include some downhill running uh, so you get the eccentric load, include variable gearing on the bike where you're not just stuck in the same gear that you like all the time. Do some in a lower lower gear, stand up so you're confident on the hill so that you change that muscle recruitment and it also spares muscle glycogen. But you know the rule of thumb, as I said, and it's not my rule, is that if I go up to a longer distance, uh, I got to increase my volume. I'm not averse to going from 70.3 to Ironman distance and interspersing longer rides and progressively longer runs. But there's a real finite uh, point, I feel, just based on potential injuries. If someone's going to be out there for seven hours on their bike in an Ironman race, do they need to ride seven hours? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe once. I take even the beginning athletes coming uh, coming up to five hours because what really what are we asking our athletes? You got to sit on a crummy uh, <laughs> saddle for a long time, so you got to be comfortable sitting on that little saddle. It's not your uh, soft chair in your living room, uh, and, and also you your body has to adapt to utilizing whatever calories you're taking if you're carbohydrate adapted or more fat adapted. So that's a good thing. 
and and also including some uh, bricks where you not only do them the conventional way of doing a swim bike run or a bike run, but doing them where you have the total amount of, or a bigger block of time where you might do a run bike run. And I, I do a lot of those because people can uh, <clears throat> run a little more fresh. They can do a little higher pieces in there and having a break in there allows them to not necessarily increase their volume, but to have better uh, mechanics and, again, the segments that are a little bit faster. I'm very wary about people that increase their volume, and I know I've said this many, 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 many times. Charles, you've been fairly quiet. Do you have any questions for Dave? Well, uh, I guess since we're talking about uh, all these sort of training parts, uh, so obviously, yeah, I think that question that you made about uh, moving up the um, up the ranks, if you want to call it, uh, somehow I I decided to start very much at the end of the rank. Somehow I was very excited about doing an Ironman, and I went for it. And of course, I so I managed to finish two of them. Some difficulties here or not, uh, but then I see a lot of people who have this fear of I need to get competitive right at shorter distance before i move to the next one right what's your philosophy in that sense yeah i i agree with you and i remember uh, working with craig alexander when he was coming from i uh, didn't he didn't make the aussie olympic team and uh he was a, a great uh, olympic distance uh, athlete and had won a lot won a lot of non-drafting then he started stepping up to 70.3 and, and i remember advising him early on uh, don't lose your top end. And we're seeing this migration now, particularly on the men's side, where we're, we're getting, I mean, Ferdano's a good example. Gomez didn't have a great race, but I think he can. Uh, maybe the Brownleys will step up. We're seeing, seeing a lot of the short course ITU athletes that have this top end, and they move up to 70.3 very, very easily. And, and some have graduated uh, quite nicely at, at Ironman. So I like doing the shorter ones. And I, and I, and I, I think, the the when we think of short races and you think of Olympic distance race, it is a big aerobic race. It's a huge aerobic race for a beginner or intermediate. And are they getting out of their aerobic zone? Well, probably on their bike, maybe on the outset of the swim. So you have to have good aerobic machinery, and that doesn't necessarily mean go go longer. So the transfer and going up, and even a sprint distance race—that's the wrong word. A sprint distance, a sprint is fifteen seconds. A sprint's not an hour and a half. So, uh, you know, I think when people are starting with the shorter distance race, they developed that top end, maybe because, as you said, Charles, they want to be competitive. Well, the, the nature of it is, gee, I got to go faster. I'm doing the shorter race. That's a good thing. Carry that into the 70.3 and Ironman as well. Okay. I mean, I, I always did, even in my train, I always did very, very high intensity training. And I, have relayed this to other athletes that I've coached, including Craig and Chrissy. And I've, and I've been pretty steadfast on this in the programs that I have with this DSTC program. We do VO2 sets, VO2 type workloads, particularly on the, on the bike and the swim as they get close to Ironman, because I want their top power output for that time duration to be at the highest level. Quite often it'll fall off. But I'll do three blocks of five to seven weeks where we do a VO2 segment on the bike and the run. This might be five times four minutes 
with three to five minutes recovery in between. And, and typically the, the workload on, on a VO2 is anywhere between about five to 18% higher than uh, people's lactate threshold or FTP. And I don't know if people understand all those terms, but a sustainable workload for a beginner, uh, if you can do uh, 30 minutes on the bike at X work at X workload, see if you can move that up five to 10% for someone who's advanced, move that up to 15 to 18%, see if you can hit those numbers or, the, or that speed. I think it's absolutely vital that these endurance triathletes have their top end going into their Ironman race. And, you know, the results speak for themselves. I, I did the same way back when, when I was racing, I wanted to be fast on my runs. Can you uh, touch a little bit on nutrition? Because I know you, you mentioned a little while ago how, you know, you were a super carb heavy athlete early on. And, and I know I've read that you've transitioned to uh, um, more of a ketogenic approach. So can you give us a little of your insight on why you made the change and, and what it does for you? Yeah, so we need, we need another two hours, but yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's a beautiful topic, actually. And it's one that Folks like myself, uh, who who are ex-jocks who have a background in physiology, who have talked about nutrition, and PhD folks, MDs, a lot of us were wrong, really wrong, because we didn't really look at the data that was out there. We went only as far as saying, we know carbohydrates work, we know the food replacement drinks work, the gels and all the other stuff will work up to a certain point, but they're the the long term effect can be very very damaging because you're getting this huge insulin response and, and insulin insulin is the number one trigger of inflammation. The other part is that I think what the manufacturers have done is said we'll take a gel and it, it has 25 grams of of carbs in it. People taking a gel, everyone's taking a gel, and we're not absorbing it. And, and most of the questions that I get on nutrition is that people taking way too much and too soon on the bike. They're probably not even utilizing any of those calories because it's just sitting there with this bolus of food and they get to the run and they've got upper GI issues. Now they have lower GI issues and they're jumping behind the bushes and in every porta potty. If you're carbohydrate adapted for health reasons, there is tremendous science on reducing those the amount of carbohydrates that you're taking and shifting from a higher carbohydrate, which I did, to a lower carbohydrate and a higher healthy fat. Without getting this too heavy, Robin, you alluded to a ketogenic diet. Ketones are liver-based um, fat globules that are produced. It's not pseudoscience. Everyone can produce ketone bodies, but it fuels your brain and your muscles at a steady state because these ketones are amazingly efficient. Performance-wise, you can cut way, way, way back in total calories because these ketones can provide energy you know, pretty much indefinitely. So for me, I gave lots of advice. And I'm sure Robin at the team and training clinic, we, you know, we talked about carbohydrates and how much you need and the replacement and so on. What I did know way back when, when I was racing and also as a coach, is that if you reduce the amount of carbohydrates and you don't take them, take them in, in the volume or in uh, at regular intervals with higher volume, you're going to start accessing if you're carbohydrate adapted, you have you know a fair amount of carbs in your in your diet over 50%. Uh, you'll start accessing free fatty acids, 
and free fatty acids, they don't fuel, fuel your brain, but they fuel your muscles. And if you're doing this, even on a, say, a 70 kilogram person, uh, you've got about 40,000 free fatty acids that are available. And if we look at muscle liver glycogen or just the blood sugar, you know, people are taking the sugar in because they're taking a gel and they're told to eat these gels and your your brain likes the gels it's fueled by glucose your muscles will respond to it we have a tendency to train with way too high carbohydrates we have a tendency to race with way too high carbohydrates and we eat too many on a regular basis i've changed i talk about shifting to a lower carb higher healthy fat moderate protein diet because it's better for your health and ironically you'll perform better on that diet you won't produce ketone bodies unless you really reduce the carbohydrate level down to a very low level initially but athletes it's not zero carbohydrates athletes can get away with more carbohydrates once they're producing these ketones typically takes about three or five weeks it's amazing science I have a an almanac of resources on this because if you speak the speak and you said eat carbohydrates, now I'm saying eat low carb, eat high fat. I better know what I'm talking about. And I better have reputable pe people that can back up my voice, which I do. <laughs> so do you believe that this high fat and lower carb diet is suitable for everyone? Because, you know, diet and nutrition is kind of a personalized not kind of it's a personalized and individual thing you know like what may work for someone may not work for someone else and with all the noise and all the different resources and opinions coming from all different types of people what what do you think is the best way to go about finding your own diet and nutrition strategy that works for you uh, there, there is a lot of noise and there, and there's a, you know, there's a magical amount of uh, marketing and a huge amount of money that's spent on really, uh, unfortunately, improper diets and not looking at this whole, whole equation. There are scientists that have been studying a ketogenic diet, which is really obviously low carb. It's been around for over a hundred years. One of the most <clears throat> reputable exercise scientists uh, who actually was involved with a uh, fluid replacement drink, developed this. He's published many, many, many books. He's done a mountain of research, and he publicly goes in front of everyone. He said, you know what, I'm wrong. And it's Tim Noakes, uh, N-O-A-K-E-S. He's from South Africa. He's a, he's a brilliant scientist. And he said, and he was also became a type 2 diabetic while, while he was running. And he said, you know, I'm doing everything wrong. I didn't look far enough. And, and he has a he has a, uh, several books that are out. Uh, one's called The Real Meal Revolution. The Real Meal Revolution. That one's a, a, a very good book. Um, the, the other two authors that, I mean, I follow a whole myriad of but guy, Stephen Finney, who's a medical doctor, uh, and he's done a lot of research, and Jeff Volek. Finney is P-H-I-N-N-E-Y, and Volek is B-O-L-E-K. Google them. They have, a book, they have a book out that's a nice, easy read, but, but has good science in it. And I recommend it to everyone. It's the art and science of low carbohydrate living. They don't talk about ketosis. They do in the book. And they they have the art and science of uh, low carbohydrate performance as well. And I, I think I'm quoting that properly. It doesn't sound quite right. But uh, Finney and Volek are both worthy of Googling because you're going to get good data. And they have to stand up in front of their peers uh, and say, you know what? You're giving all these athletes 
improper data and they've done it for a long time and now people are listening to them. So even if you reduce your carbohydrates, a lot of the studies weren't down low enough so you didn't get significant changes. And when people go to a lower carb, that could be all the way down to five to 8% if you're in ketosis, up to about 15 to 20% once, you, once you've um, lowered that down. Then you're going to start burning free fatty acids or ketones. I know this is a big topic and I can, <laughs> I'm like a yeah. whirlwind on the subject matter, but I, I would look at those, um, those areas. And there's a, there's a number, I have a whole list. I'd be glad to share this with you. If your listeners want more information in the science and all sure. the people, it's world. I mean, it's worldwide. It's not just a, a little niche thing in the U S it's, it's across the world. And, and Finney and Volek actually presented in Melbourne. Uh, you can, you can download their um, information uh, on YouTube. They also have a website called Verta, V-I-R-T-A. Uh, it's one of many that I enjoy listening to. And there's really good information on that Verta website. Yeah, and to everyone listening, we'll make sure to link all this on our website so you can check all everything mentioned over there. You can, you can come to mine too because oh, yeah. <laughs> we've just started chattering about in the Dave Scott Tri Club um, about diet. We haven't, I've had enough, we have a forum. So I answer all questions with athletes that are pouring in and we, I just did a, I do two webinars a month on it. So people uh, can see me and they say, oh, wow, you've really aged Dave. What happened? Uh, but we, we talk about lots of different topics and diet is coming up. And, you know, again, Robin, you kind of opened this up. This is a magnificent topic. I love talking about it, but we need a lot of time. Right. Well, I do want to ask uh, one, at least one tiny question about team and training, because I just think that's uh, a marvelous organization. And, and, you know, you pour a lot of time and energy into, into helping the coaches succeed. I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is a great organization. I, I didn't let you finish your question, Robin. Excuse me. No, I just wanted to hear how you got involved with them. They actually came to me and, and they said, would you start a triathlon division? So at that time, it was really predominantly running. There was a walking division and then triathlon became the second largest. I, I said, yeah, that'd be great. Didn't really know what that entailed. But part of it was, you know, doing these coaches clinics. And, and again, my thing is let's give them as much information as you can. And <laughs> the, the, the clinics were condensed, as you know, and we needed more ongoing education with them. But uh, I, I felt that that was a, at least a stepping stone for a lot of coaches that didn't have a have a background. I did it for 13 years uh, and they kind of changed the model a little bit and basically want to do everything online. And I just said, well, I don't want to do that. I think what the coaches really uh, enjoyed was interaction with other coaches and hopefully a little bit with me. So uh, uh, I bowed out of the program, but I still have great admiration for it. Right, thanks. Okay, so as we're nearing the end of the podcast, um, before we go to the wrap-up questions, just this one question, which I think, you know, I hear one thing I hear a lot in the community of age group triathletes, um, they complain or just comment on a lot is how expensive the sport is. So if you were an age group athlete today on a budget, what would be some of the more essential things you would invest in, um, whether that be with coaches or nutrition or trainers or power meters and stuff? And what would be what would you keep on sort of the secondary list? Well, I, I think you hit it on your list. Uh, 
there's a lot of pseudo coaches and certainly here in the States, you can buy a t-shirt and emblazon coach on it, and put it on your website and you don't have a background at all. I think that's a, I think it's a discredit to the coaching profession. Um, you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have any training in exercise physiology or biomechanics or nutrition. You can just say you're a coach. And a lot of coaches have uh, grown a new leaf because they were a, a decent athlete. And now they can give out advice. I'm hard on coaches and, I, and I, I hate to see this and I don't like it. So I would I would seek out a coach. I would do your homework on their background and I would ask a whole boatload of questions to that coach. <laughs> And if they get nervous or upset, then I'd walk away. So that, that's the first. That's the first one. Um, I think some of the things that I have talked about is that you, everyone wants to offset or override any potential injuries. And here's the second side: if you have a coach who has a good background in biomechanics and, and uh, strength and mobility and flexibility, I would do that on a regular basis. And in my little club thing. What we've designed for everyone is how much time does this take? A lot of people, I don't want to do any of that. So my suggestion is, is that you can weave in 15 minutes a day, five days a week. So you have 75 minutes and you're going to get a huge return in doing that. And, um, you know, I would I would either get a, your uh, your coach to do that if, if the person is skilled or get a trainer. That's a good investment. As far as equipment, you better look at the swims that you're going to be doing. If you're in a colder place, I'd get a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's probably a prerequisite. I work with Hoob and uh, have a nice discount on my website, but I, I would get a I would get a wet wetsuit. Um, in the old days, we just jumped in and froze to death, but everyone was equal. So if you got out of the race and you weren't hypothermic, you'd probably do fairly well. Um, they're they're kind of vital. Uh, I, I think the you know probably the next area is is. Um, you know, do you upgrade to get the most expensive bike on the market? Well, that you know, that's it is right. Expense is 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 an expense. I would get someone to fit you properly on your existing bike, mm. and start with that. So get the proper fit. Most people are not fitted properly. Your coach may know that as well if he he or she has a background in that area, and then you're kind of off and running because you're. And get a good pair of shoes, I guess. Um, you know, so, some of the some of the folks that have difficulty with swimming, swap male like you. I mean, you brought that up. I didn't. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it's it's helpful if you're in a group and you have an eagle eye with a swimming coach. And as Robin, as you said, there there's a lot of inherent technique flaws if you don't have a swimming background, and quite often those change over time, which I spoke about. So if you have a group that you can swim with, it's motivating, and you also have a discerning eye on technique. I mean, that's, that's my list, I guess. Perfect. All right. So we just got a final few questions here to take us to the end. Going forward, what would you want your next chapters to look like? My next chapter? <laughs> Everyone around me who knows me said, just be calm, Dave. <laughs> so I'm trying to have that calmness and clarity and resolve by the end of the day and not finish my day when I put my head on my pillow and I'm like a hurricane upstairs. <laughs> I, uh, I'm really passionate about obviously the sport. We wouldn't have been talking about it for an hour and 36 minutes so far. Uh, but I, I've never lost my inherent interest in, in teaching people. And I always say I'm, I'm a teacher before I'm a coach. Uh, you know, people ask, 
when you're coaching these people, do you get bored or restless? Well, there's certainly times when I'm agitated or, and, and they know it. But I rarely am in front of a group and I'm not enthusiastic about making them better. And I know that sounds kind of fluffy and it sounds kind of silly, but you know, I can say over a long, long time now, I, I still want to maintain that in my next chapter. How long will I go? I don't know. All right. And what's the message you would want people listening to take away from your story? Oh, I'm not a robot. I'm not some Martian <laughs> that Charles was talking about yet. But, uh, I'm not really sure what, what category you put me in, Charles. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the mindset, the seriousness side of, of Dave Scott, yeah, I, I have that. But the other side is... Um, if you can't see any lightness or levity or humor in what you're doing and you you can't sit back at the end of the day and sort of laugh at yourself, you're going to tie yourself in knots. And I think that's kind of been my savior is, is I've always been able to see, uh, you know, the humor, subtle humor in, in what I'm doing and what I see in people. And that gives me energy. And I, I think maybe the, the bottom line is, is that, yeah, it's good to be serious, but golly, let it go sometimes. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's something every age group can definitely work on. Yeah, and I see a lot of the age groups are age groupers. I'm not picking on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of them are, are just you know they're pathological. I'm going, God Almighty, just relax. It's just a rape. <laughs> and I see this with the pros. They're just tying themselves in knots, and they say, "Well, I didn't do this and didn't do that, and should should have done this." And I I always tell them, "Don't give me your list of should." I should have done. Tell me what you want. Mm. And I always present this to the athletes that I'm coaching. I say, what do you want? And they look at me with this resolve, like, well, I, I, I want to be able to, to do it. I, all right. Then let, how do you attain that? And, and I, I think a lot of people put this uh, inherent fear. They, they, they have a fear of failure. That's a huge one, but there's a fine pinnacle on, fearing success as well and it's very difficult for people to define the success and failure and they can climb up this ladder and you can have two or three bad days of training and you failed and that's nonsense that's absolute nonsense and I, and I use myself going back to the outset of our conversation is that you don't fail if you've had a little blip because life dictates that you need to take a break you have to have a break it wasn't timely but now regroup on what you can do. And don't forget that 20-minute rule will save your life. That's a good one. Absolutely love the message. Okay. And are there any people or brands you'd like to give a shout-out to? <laughs> Around me? Well, there's no one here. At the... <laughs> it directly or indirectly? <laughs> uh, well, I think you're a pretty direct guy. So Directly. Now, there's, uh, I'm... I'm by myself. I actually have told my dad. He's uh, 94 and a half and uh, he swims four days a week right. wow. and he does strength stuff because i beat him with the stick and and he still drives lives independently and and uh, i told him that i'm gonna get i'll give him a free pass to my membership because he he digs all the videos and the chats that i do and so i i'll give a shout out to my dad Vern. a lot of people know him in the sport he, he started what was called triathlon federation usa try and started a, in his home, my home at the time. And there was fax machines and a few other things that were technologically inept. And he's a workhorse. My mother um, is deceased uh, about four years now. 
And I think they, if I could talk to my mom and say, hey, to my dad, they gave me the button to, to drive myself, to push myself. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of positives, even though I brought up the mental side of it, that's an emotional side that has weighed me heavily. I also look at the very positive notion, the work ethic that they instilled, that's a darn good thing. And my kids have it too. So I, I'm, I'm proud of that. That's amazing. And before we ask our last question, what's the best way someone can get in touch with you or your team with regards to coaching or anything like that? Well, they can they can just uh, Google DSTC, Dave Scott Tri Club, uh, or they can go to Dave Scott Incorporated. I always tell people just go- just Google Dave Scott. There's either a, a, a felon, a felon. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a there's a, a black singer. He's amazing, and there's an astronaut. Uh, David Scott and I, I actually I, I received two of these from young kids. They've sent me a picture of this astronaut, David Scott, and they said, "Oh, I really admired your career. Could you autograph this for me?" <laughs> and uh, I remember I thought, "Well, I'll send him one of my pictures." And a lot of the pictures that I that I send out for years was you know me finishing. I'm wearing my little swim togs, and I thought, "Oh my God!" with uh, with all the demented and perverted people on the internet now i said i can't can't send this back to the 10 year old boy with this, this man wearing his little swim brief i said i'll probably <laughs> yeah i think the easiest way is just google me that's the best way you'll, you'll find me it sounds a bit pretentious but uh you know it'll have some sort of iron man shot that will hopefully be uh, pleasing <laughs> <laughs> okay and our final question is why do you try why do I try? Man, I'm crazy about it. I, uh, you, I've used the word passionate. People say, do you still like to swim, bike, run? And there's really no small little gem that's tucked away forever and ever. It always percolates to the top when I can do all three on one day and feel like I've got in a good rhythm exercise-wise. I still love to swim, bike, run. I'll never lose that until I go to my grave. <laughs> All right, Mr. Dave Scott. So you're an absolute legend and we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It was a real pleasure and I definitely look forward to future conversations and collaborations. Well, thank you for your time. And uh, if we want to talk on another topic, uh, you know how to find me, right? I'm not the astronaut. <laughs> real pleasure. Nor the felon. The guy in the Speedo. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks a lot for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you love the hot podcast, it would mean a lot to us if you could subscribe, rate, and leave the podcast a review on whichever platform you're listening on. Your reviews help the show be found by and reach more people like yourself. So we'd really appreciate it if you took a minute to leave us that review. And thank you all for being a part of this community if you haven't already you can find and follow us on instagram facebook and strava at humans of triathlon so head on over there and let us and our guests know how you like the episode also the show notes for everything mentioned or discussed on the episode can be found on our website which is humansoftriathlon.com forward slash hot podcast And be sure to join us again next week where we'll bring you another amazing guest and story from this ordinary but extraordinary world of triathlon. Until then everyone, keep trying. Keep trying.